a total of eight gunshot wounds, meaning that he was hit by eight bullets. Stephen Clark received eight bullets. Six of the bullets, like you could see in the body diagram, exhibited gunshot wounds of entrance in the back, meaning he was shot in the back six times. The seventh gunshot wound was slightly to the side of his body, but to the back of the side of his body. So you could reasonably conclude that he received seven gunshot wounds from his back. He was shot from the back. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, y'all. Welcome back. Oh, here we go. Here we go. It's your boy, Dan White Hodge. Welcome back to Profane Faith. Well, another week. Another time and another unarmed black man is killed. Um, I'm sure y'all have heard of Stefan Clark. I'm sure you've already heard the news of uh, Alton Sterling. Um, You know, they're firing one of the police officers. And, you know, it's like, well, two years is like, good night. You're just you're just going to do that. Oh, man. Wow, man. The stuff just continues, y'all. First and foremost, you know. This is your first episode of Profane Faith. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show, uh, Dan White Hodge. Uh, I always recommend folks to go back and listen to episode zero zero if you get a chance. Um, there's some, uh, you know, just kind of sets the uh, premise for this podcast. Uh, thank you for all the support that uh, folks have been showing. Thank you for, um, you know, the folks who've been, you know, just showing up and retweets. Retweets are always good, man. You know, so if you're hearing this, man, you know, get out there. Profane Faith. Uh, uh, my Twitter is uh, Dan White Hodge, at Dan White Hodge. And then uh, Facebook, we're under White Hodge Podcasts. Um, and, uh, you know, we have weekly postings. So, uh, you know, you could come check it out, man. So thank you so much for those who've been supporting. And uh, just thanks for the constant feedback and whatnot. And, um, you know, rate us on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, the whole nine, right? Wherever you get your uh, wherever you get your podcast and whatnot. And so my, my feed is on whitehodgepodcast.com. Come check us out, yo. Come check us out. Um, this week, you know, um, you know, just more of the madness of being a black man in uh, in this country, uh, trying to be Christian and uphold some semblance of faith in in all of this madness in this this in the Trumpster era. Um, it is maddening to no end. Um, 
things that uh, my work are a little uh, mellow now, mellower now. If you've been following along the last couple weeks, you know, there was some static uh, a couple weeks back, and uh, now we're into, you know, the third week. Um, you know, I'm into advising now, so I'm, you know, I got a lot of, you know, just needy undergrads that are, you know, just hanging around trying to get, you know, they classes and everything. So it's all good. It is what it is, and, um, you know, trying to knock that out. But, uh, you know, a few weeks back, uh, like I said last week, you know, some cat or somebody, I don't know who it was, somebody out there um, was uh, printed off my social media for the, like the last six months and then sent it, you know, to like all my superiors and whatnot and stuff trying to, you know, make some noise. And here's the thing. The continuance of white supremacy, the continuance of whiteness uh, throughout our country um, is it is I would say at one of the most all time highs, you know, maybe, maybe since um, I don't know, maybe since slavery. I mean, and granted, I you know I wasn't I wasn't born in the '60s. I wasn't I didn't live in that. I didn't live through that. So, you know, those of you who are a little older, you know, you have you I'm sure you have a different perspective of living through the '50s and '60s uh, and whatnot. So, you know, correct me, uh, but I would say this as a communication theorist that the pervasiveness of whiteness is amplified when you add in the, the components of media theory, right? When you think about cultivation theory, when folks who sit around and cultivate on one idea over and over and over, right? I mean, this kind of ties into an old school thought of the mean world syndrome, right? Right. The, the world is bad. Crime rates are increasing, even though they're not. Um, immigrants are taking over our, our community and, you know, we got to protect ourselves. And, and so, uh, that pervasiveness of the, the constant beating the drum, you know, the, really the, the frightening of white America um, is, is a constant. And so then that, that, that pushback then comes out in many, many different forms, right? It's microaggressions. It's uh, just you standing in line somewhere. I mean, I was my family and I, this is Easter weekend. If you're listening to this, I know I'm dating this. I mean, this could be you know, three, four years from now, but this is uh, Easter weekend here. And, you know, my family and I, we went up, uh, we, we play tourists today and we went, downtown chicago went up to the uh, willits tower and uh, went all the way up to the top and uh you know did the sky deck and you know we you know this whole bunch of people up there we're all you know trying to get in line to go to the um this little thing that overlooks the it's like that they're they they're like these glass things that jut out the side of the building and you can like you know it feels like you up on the top and i didn't hear this i wish i had heard the dude but my wife comes back and tells me you know some of the white dudes like hey the line starts back there you know just I don't know you. I don't, you know, it's just, I mean, just the pervasiveness of white men in particular, their place in the world, right? The history books have told them that this is their world. This is their place. And so there is, there is no filter, right? You know, um, to, for anything, it's just, you know, Hey, back of the line, you know what I'm saying? I'm here. I own this space, you know, and it just, I mean, it just gets tiring, man. It just gets tiring. You know, you ask yourself, um, you know, it's in church this morning and, uh, you know, a Sam Cooke song came on, you know, a change going to come. And I asked myself that. It's like, when is it? When is it? <laughs> when is that change going to come? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when that change is going to be. Um, you know, I try to hold on. I try to hold on to my faith. I try to hold on, you know, with prayers. I try to do the, you know, the the, the rigmarole, right? You know, through that and, and whatnot. And there is, I mean, there is some comfort in that. There is some I should say some 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 connection that I think is is important uh, as a person of faith to to have um, at the same time, you know, I, I like to see some results. I like to see some things. And <laughs> it's difficult when you see another brother gunned down 
um, another, you know, a no, no, no justice being served. Um, and I haven't even read the comments. I, you know, I stopped reading comments, you know, on, on national news like this, probably right after Mike Brown. I mean, you know, just the, the commentary, you know, that's there. And I, there's only so many times you can, you know, you can see the word nigger and, and monkey and, you know, and, and the, the profane and then, and, and I mean profane in the, in the literal sense, not in the name of the show, uh, the podcast, but the, in, in just almost a, a dehumanizing of how somebody is going to take somebody apart and their members and their limbs and all that stuff. I don't want to hear that mess anymore. I don't want to read it. Because you get tired of it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is what I grew up with um, in Menard, Texas. This is, you know, this is the attitude, the pervasive, um, you know, hate that is visceral that comes at you, you know, um, on a daily basis and stuff. And so I don't necessarily want to read that. But to see these things over and over and over. And I'm also wondering, too, you know, what is the what is the level of desensitizing that happens when you see particularly black men killed over and over and over? I'm no psychologist. But I can imagine it has some kind of effect. And so I'm curious. I'm curious to know, too, uh, just in some of the anecdotal uh, connections that I've had with young people, particularly young black men, uh, you know, their response to a lot of this is just like, you know, it's hard to feel anymore. It's like, you know, you see stuff, in, in, you know, in real life, you see stuff on television, you see stuff in the media. And it's like after a while, it's just kind of like, well, I don't know what to feel. I don't have any more tears. I don't have any more feelings and whatnot. Now, again, this is anecdotal. I'd love to take this research up and actually figure out like what, you know, what is the psychological connection? What is the cognitive response, you know, to a constant bashing? I, I can guess based off of other studies and research. Um, it can't be good. Um, it can't be good. Um, and so I'm curious, I'm curious. And, uh, at the same time as somebody who's been in it for a long time, I, I also know the importance of rest and self-care um, and the impact of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, these things are major. New York Times just released a, I think, well, these, it was New York Times or Washington Post just put out uh, an article. I should put this in the show notes, too, um, to activists and people who are engaged. Actually, it was the New York Times because it was it was, uh, it was one of the editions I get on California. It was talking about how activists, particularly African-American activists, you know, are prone to depression, prone to suicide prone to uh self-abuse you know and the things that we don't talk about you know and that in that you know their health is that much more at risk because heart attacks you know heart attacks at the age of 27 right i mean this is some crazy stuff man i mean so i tell folks man you know if you ain't ready to get in the justice game don't get in it don't because this isn't, you know, this, it's fun when we're at conferences, right? It's like, oh, it's great. And to hear great talks, man. But the day to day, the beating of the drum day to day, day in, day out, it's something else. And then to have to face crap, you know, as a woman, uh, as a black man, as 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 an LGBTQ uh, person uh, of color, uh, as an LGBTQ person in period in general, to face those things in realities every day and gone day, it's something else. And so I've been trying to practice some self-care, you know, it was one of the reasons, you know, why I wanted to go out with the family. Let's go hang out. Let's enjoy Easter. Have my little bow tie on, you know what I'm saying? Have my little sport coat going and had, you know, have my, have my sock game banging. You know what I'm saying? I had my little, uh, 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 pocket square and everything hooked up, you know, and it's just, and it only takes one, you know, one fool to be like, Hey, go to the back of the line. You know, it's just like these little microaggressions, these little things, man, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> pray for your boy, man. I tell you, it's uh, it's it's no joke. It's no joke trying to be out here. Um, and you know, and that's another thing is, is like I don't, I'm not even uh, my two guests this week. These are brothers who are out on the line. Like I, I, I do stuff. Like you know, what I'm saying I'm out there and I'm engaged and whatnot. We all have different roles. We all have different spokes in the wheel of justice, of social justice, social action, um, community consciousness, and you know, self awareness. These two brothers, Dr. Andre Johnson, who I've brought on before, and I got uh, a Dr. Earl Fisher, right? These two brothers are out there engaged in their community out in Memphis, and I wanted to bring them on the show for several reasons. One, uh, they're intelligent, they're bright, they're smart. They're also engaged in their community in ways that um, I am just, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just blown away by, right? I'm, I am so excited to see what they're doing and this particular episode is engaging, particularly with activism in, in the local context. And in this local context, they are taking down statues. A lot of you know, you know, I, I'm kind of like a history buff. And so, you know, I've taught courses on African-American history and, uh, you know, the African-American, you know, from like 1500 to like, you know, 1700. And spending time looking at some of the just the madness that happened, you know, in those uh, in those years, uh, it's crazy. And so I'm not really a fan of any of the quote unquote founding fathers, you know? Um, but particularly I'm dang sure not a fan of anybody on the Confederate side. Yet those are some of the same statues. Those are some of the same emblems that you were bombarded with, right? We still have a statue here of Columbus in here in Chicago, right? And we're bombarded with these as people of color. You know, we're bombarded with these these um, these remembrances. Really, it's an icon. And really, a lot of them didn't even go up. You know, I'll let uh, both Andre and Earl, you know, explain kind of the history of this. But a lot of them didn't even go up into the 60s. So this had nothing to do with history. I can hear some white folks now being like, or just some people in general, right? Be like, hey, man, you know, but this is what about history, right? They belong in a history book or in a museum. I don't want them paraded. I don't want them, you know, being shown right out in front of me. I, I, I don't want to have to engage with that. This is some madness. These people were rapists. These people were killers. These people were murderers. These people were genociders. These, these were not pleasant people. Yet we have statues and we're honoring them. So these brothers got together with their community. It wasn't just them. Within their community, um, they organized and they were able to remove uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. You don't know who that brother is. They're going to explain it to you, but he was, he was not a good person. Um, and uh, they were able to remove his statue, um, did so in a great way, and I am 110% for it. And so it's stories like these, y'all, that give me a little bit of hope. It's stories like these that give me the push to keep, to keep going on. And I really appreciate brothers like this and brothers and sisters. And again, I don't want to leave out any women who are doing this. And, you know, I try to give good representation of women who are doing amazing stuff and engaged in, uh, in community activism as well. So, and they didn't like, you know, they'll be the first to say, Hey, we didn't do it alone. We organized, we got a community. This was a community effort in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, to get this down. I mean, so this was big y'all. This was huge. And I, again, I cannot say how encouraged I am to see stuff like this because there's so many victories lost. Well, victories, how many battles lost? Excuse me. There's so many, there, there are not enough victories. Excuse me. Rather there, there are not enough victories and there just seems like it's just a constant loss, constant loss. And to see some victories, to see some, some battles won, it's like, man, that's great. That's great. This is, this is good. This is good. This is good stuff. So I would take 
what I can get, <laughs> what I can get it. Um, so, you know, Dr. Andre Johnson, he's an assistant professor of communication studies out at the University of Memphis. He is uh, the curator and director of the Henry McNeil Turner Project, hashtag HMT Project, a digital archive focusing on the collection of writings from Bishop Turner. He is also the author of The Forgotten Prophet, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner in the African-American prophetic tradition and the editor of Urban God Talk. Constructing a hip-hop spirituality. If you have not read that book, oh man, um, it's an amazing book, and I cannot and uh, cannot say enough good stuff for it. I, I use it in my, of course, my hip-hop culture and theology class, um, and it's just it's a really good read. I love readers. If you know anything about me, you know I love readers. I love it because it's just multiple perspectives on, on things. Uh, Dr. Earl Fisher, I guess it's soon to be. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a grad student, PhD grad student. I think he's, I think he's getting ready to finish up. Uh, he's native-born of Benton Harbor, uh, Michigan. Uh, Earl J. Fisher graduated from Benton Harbor High School in 96, earned an associate degree in liberal arts in 1999 from Lake Michigan College, a bachelor's of science degree in computer science in 2003 from Owen, Owen College, and a master of divinity, y'all, in 2008 from Memphis Theological Seminary. Uh, he's currently working on a Ph.D., and he is also t- a teacher He's an activist. He's a first-generation PhD fellowship, 2014-2018, funded by the state of Tennessee to the University of Memphis to provide financial assistance to graduate students who are underrepresented in their respective disciplines. Yo, any of y'all considering PhD work, one of the things I wish I would have done was got that bad boy girl funded. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, I got a, some of my stuff paid for, but not enough. And oh, if I had to do it over again, I would go to a place that was going to pay me. Uh, this brother has research interests in the African-American religious and rhetoric uh, uh, connections, uh, contemporary radical theory, and the prophetic persona and rhetoric of Albert Cleese Jr. These two brothers are amazing. Uh, I'm going to put all their bio and info and Twitter and all that good stuff in, in the show notes. Um, but these two brothers have a lot of great things going on. And I just really wanted to share with you guys just the journey that they were on and the conversation that we had in regards to, um, you know, what it, you know, what it, what it means to be on the ground, you know, doing this type of work and be engaged in this type of um, environment. So this is going to be a little long ones, <laughs> but there's a lot of good stuff in here. You may want to take this in two parts. Uh, I'll promise to keep it under an hour and a half or an hour 20. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, it'll be, it won't be that long, but it, but it'll still be, you know, we got, there's, there's a lot of ground to cover. And I think these uh, conversations are important. It's easy to, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I know some people say, oh man, you know, get your podcast done in like 20 minutes, man. I tell you what, I, I wish I was, I, it was, it, it was that easy. Maybe when I do another podcast on a different subject, you know, I do it in 20 minutes, but uh, these are some big conversations. So without any further ado, I give you Andre and Earl on a conversation on removing Nathan Bedford Forrest. Here we go. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, and we are here. I told y'all I was going to bring Dr. Andre Johnson back with y'all. I have him on the line. Brother Earl Fisher is going to come on soon as well. But uh, we are here discussing this momentous occasion that, that happened out in Memphis, the removal of a statue Nathan Bedford Forrest. Brother Andre, welcome back to Profane Faith. Oh, man, thanks for having me back. Hey, you're doing some good work with this Profane Faith, man. It's blowing up all on Twitter, all on social media. Uh, I'm sure your downloads are getting righteous, man, and I just want to 
encourage everybody to download Profane Faith. Oh. Get it in get it in your phones now and listen. You will be shocked and amazed, but you will be pleased as well. I heard that, <laughs> man. <laughs> Shoot, I, I, I should probably use that as a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to sample that, man. <laughs> well, thank you, man. It's It's been good. Profane Faith, is, we've gotten some good um, some good marks and, uh, you know, took a little break over the uh, the holiday season, but okay. we're back now, and uh, this is great. Well, listen, man, let's hop right into this. I mean, this is, um, this is an ongoing conversation about, you know, statue removal and Confederacy, especially now under the Trump administration. Um, I'd love to hear just the process, what, what brought this up and, uh, and really, you know, for the listeners, who is Nathan Bedford Forrest? Oh, wow. Um, how long do we have? No, I... <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest is a, a was rather a Confederate, um, a Confederate who fought in the American civil war on the side of the South, the Confederacy. He, uh, of course, lost and became, as the marker here in Memphis says, a successful businessman. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the reason why he became a successful businessman is because um, he um, dealt in uh, enslaved people. But not only that, he was the first, Dan, to um, um, start what will later be called the convict leasing system. So mm. even after slavery, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest had a, quote, work farm uh, up here in um, West Tennessee, and uh, he contracted out with the state to work, quote, unquote, um, um, prisoners or people that were enslaved in prisons during the time and um, made a, a small fortune just on the bodies of uh, black folk even after slavery. Wow. So Nathan Bedford Forrest trafficked in black bodies. He dealt black bodies. He whipped black bodies. He lied on black bodies. He slept with, I'm sure, black bodies. And all of this, uh, and, and after all of this, the city of Memphis um, decided back in 1904, I believe, hmm. to um, um, erect a statue honoring this man. And you only, you know, um, uh, erect statues of people uh, that you feel at that time that you are asking um, people to um, uh, to allow you to do this to people who you think uh, were worthy of that distinction. Right. 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 So it, so it tells me that in 1904. Way after the Civil War, yes. way after Reconstruction, you're getting into the 20th century uh, in the post-emancipation era that Memphians still remembered fondly Nathan Bedford Forrest enough to erect a statue, not in some desolate place, not in some place off the beaten path, not in some place where no one would be able to see him, but on Union Street. Yeah. Now, now, yeah. now, get that union, <laughs> <laughs> right? As if he is watching over um, um, the union, um, the army, and the country uh, that defeated him. But it's almost as if, for uh, all that time, he was getting the last laugh. Like, 
Here I am. <laughs> right. And um, not only that, but uh, they moved, they interred um, um, his body and his wife's body, and they moved the bodies after death to this spot. Oh, wow. Uh, um, so this was for Confederates, for neo-Confederates, for racists, for people who are sympathetic to Confederate aims. This was a sacred space for them. And um, that statue had meaning. And for the longest time, you can go down Union as you're heading downtown or away from downtown into the what is now the medical district uh, mm -hmm. in our community and sitting high on his 20-foot uh, foot horse, 2,000-ton uh, statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, riding uh, as, as he is the victor. Uh, not over Mem not only over Memphis, but also America. So Nathan Bedford Farmers was not a good man at all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I um, I actually because I mean it, the, the funny thing about it is is that when I was teaching, uh, when I first started teaching African American history, and this was like from 1600 to about 1865, it was two two parts of the class, and you know two different semesters. Yeah. Um, I you know I started learning about um. You know, just history and just workers and people oh, and oh my bad, Dan. Can I just add one caveat? I, I yes. forgot to say because yes, I was please. on the roll. Yes, uh, and you can get back to your point. But, no, no, uh, yeah, don't say he it. He is also in eighteen sixty six the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, okay, now, I got that little nugget. <laughs> just a little nugget there. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that was just it because I actually. The first time I heard the name, I actually thought it was a farce because, I, you know, it was um, Forrest Gump. And, uh, you know, this this, you know, this kind of fictional character that went through the world and, uh, you know, it was able to do different things and whatnot. All that to say, I didn't I didn't realize that Nathan Bedford Forrest was a real person until I actually started digging in and reading this. And I'm just like, oh, whoa, this is a real person. This person was villainous i mean right. um i guess right. I'm, i i mean one person said it and i've said this before and this was on social media somebody said look it's like somebody comes in and kills your family rapes your your your, your partner um kills them next you know slaughters everybody and then they ask a question like what you know what after all that happens it's like yeah but where do you want us to memorialize this person at, and where can we put the statue? Um, <laughs> and I, well, and I guess, go ahead. I mean, when you think about, and this is part of the campaign of taking down 901, where um, Tammy Sawyer did an excellent job in leading us, and just a big shout out for her hmm. uh, for um, um, putting all of this together, getting us. Um, uh, motivated and active into taking down these statues. But Dan, I mean, if you think about it, and that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to just get people to think. Just think. I, I told them, people were asking me, are you against the statues being up? I say, no, I'm not against the statues being up. I'm a, I just want them in the Confederate States of America. <laughs> <laughs> right. He, you can put up all the statues you want in the Confederate States of America, but not in the United States of America. Yes. And people are like, wait a minute. Um, I never thought of it. Yeah, because this is honoring the Confederacy, a nation 
by the way, 1861 to 1865, a lot of people forget that the 13 Confederate states formed their yeah. own nation. Mm. They had their own constitution. Yes. They had their own governors, their own senators and representatives. They had their own money. Yeah. And it was for the expressed purpose. If you just go back and read the document at the founding of the Confederacy, each state uh, decided to withdraw, Tennessee included, to withdraw from the Union, yeah. from the United States of America, because of slavery. They thought slavery was what? God-inspired, God-ordained. And that's another thing that we can talk about as well, too, how religion um, helped shape the Confederacy and how the Daughters of the Confederacy um, got all of these statues up after post-emancipation in the first place. Um, these folk wanted slavery to continue. That was the reason why they formed their own union. Wow. So they were defeated. It would be the equivalent of um, the United States of America after World War II uh, after defeating fascism and uh, and and German and Nazism, uh, it would be the equivalent of Nazi sympathizers in America. Ten years later, erecting statues of members of the Third Reich, mm. and people would think that folk have lost their minds if they wanted to do something like that. Matter of fact, um, um, from what I understand, uh, <clears throat> the uh, the swastika is. A ban in Germany, yeah, but, um, uh, racist to to uh, symbolize the uh, race hate and Confederate flags. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> so that that tells you enough about what it is that um, those symbols um, meant, and uh, we are so glad that they are taken down. No, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's it's. Um... Because I had a family member um, who was talking about, you know, they couldn't understand why these statues were being taken down and that, you know, this and this and that. And, and I pointed out, I was like, well, I was like, it'd be like the equivalent, very similar to what you guys are saying, be the equivalent of, of, of having, as soon as you walk out of Berlin, you know, the airport, it's like you have a picture, you know, a statue there of, of Hitler, you know, and, and, you know, it's like that, what, what would that symbolize? Like, what would that and most Germans are, are shameful about that history. They don't even want to talk about right. it. It's just like, oh, right. man, like, no, no, yeah, that happened, but good night. Um, in, in, in this, uh, we just had Earl log on. He is here. Brother Earl Fisher. Dr. Earl Fisher, is that is that correct? Am I correct in announcing oh, that? Uh, oh, oh. You know how they say close but a cigar. You know, uh, I, I don't have a cigar yet because I got people like Dr. Andre Johnson on my committee, and you know he is he is a uh, tenacious hazer and academia. So I'm not done yet. I still got to finish uh, my writing and my dissertation, but I am in the process of finishing it, and uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful thing. So grateful for Andre. Uh, make sure they got to make sure he earns it, Dr. Dane. That's right. No, I got you, man. I. Got I got you, man. He don't want to thrust upon him. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I have... Go ahead. I said I want to be made right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. 
Man, that's awesome, man. I had Ralph Watkins on my committee, man, and he, yeah, man, he was like, he was all cold and cordial right before the um the defense, and as soon as we went in, man, he was like a different brother in there, man. I was like, <laughs> damn, man. Come on now. <laughs> but, hey, I, I feel you. So, Earl, man, tell us a little bit just about who you are and just how did you ended up in this whole schematic of trying to get this Bedford Forest removed? Yeah, man. Well, I think if you've been paying attention to the landscape of social justice and black liberation in Memphis, you would have had to been mindful of uh, what those statues represented. And I think anytime you rode around the community and, and, and felt the, the thrust of evil and hatred that that statue had, that those statues evoked, uh, you would have felt like you had to do something. And there have been a lot of conversation uh, over the years about how the statues could be removed. There also have been a lot of uh, initiatives and efforts related to social justice that I have been involved in. Of course, Andre have been involved in many of them. And uh, the sister who organized Take Them Down 901, Tammy Sawyer, and I have been in many ways kind of sort of joined at the hip over the past few years since we formed the Memphis Grassroots Organizations Coalition after the killing of uh, Darius Stewart by Officer Connor Schilling here in Memphis. And so Tammy actually organized the Take Them Down 901 group, and she was uh, meeting with some people in the community to jumpstart the discussion, or restart the discussion, I should say, about what happened to get those statues removed. Mm -hmm. And so her and I were in conversation, and then it kind of sort of, took off from a meeting that she had in June. I couldn't attend that meeting because I think I had a class to teach that night. But then in August, after Charlottesville happened, she reached out to me and some others and had a conversation about what we felt like we should do. Because she said, we got to do something. I was like, you're right. And then we actually put a call out for people around the country to go stand by the uh, Confederate statues wherever they were and uh stand in solidarity with the sister who lost her life in Charlottesville that night. And so we went out there and did that that day in Memphis, and then it kind of snowballed into uh, all kinds of uh, initiatives, petitions being signed, yeah. uh, demand by, on behalf of the community and all of that other stuff. And before you know it, uh, we were in the, the thrust of a, a battle between ourselves, our local administration, the Tennessee Historical Commission, which is a governing body that was literally put together to usurp authority from Memphis with regards to these uh, Confederate statues of memorabilia. And we fought that thing out, man. We did what we could at the grassroots level and tried to provoke some people who were legal minds and legislators and elected officials to do what they could. And before you know it, uh, some traction would be made and some some maneuvers took place. And we got a call saying that they were going to finally come down. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's that that is uh, this is amazing. And so um, so I'd love to just, you know, throw it out there to both of you brothers, because I'm sure there's folks listening, you know, trying to better understand this significance and what this means. And I mean, and for me, I mean, I, I mean, I've looked back as far as, I mean, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's, it's like a no brainer, but so is somebody even like, you know, Andrew Jackson or a Washington or a Columbus who we have a statue of here in Chicago, um, just memorializing Christopher Columbus. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you guys talk to other folks 
in the community or just even around the country for that matter in regards to saying, oh, we need to preserve these statues and this is a part of American history. What? How do you guys address that? Either either one of you. Well, let age go before beauty. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say this as as the younger of the two, and, and the more novice of the two, and I'm sure uh, Dr. I, I'm sure Dr. Johnson can uh, can uh, pick this up and, and pick up any missing pieces. First of all, we never said that these monuments had to be destroyed, so this was not an argument about whether or not we could preserve history. For us, especially when you start thinking about this as two rhetoricians in this conversation. Location matters in terms of rhetoric because where something is situated communicates a certain thing about what it is. And so, for instance, the Nathan Bedford Forest statue, I think Andre may have alluded to this earlier already, was erected in 1905. But it is erected, it was erected, thanks be to God, right, (laughs) on Union Avenue, (laughs) which symbolically communicated a affront to the Union Army. Not only was it erected on Union Avenue, it was erected facing south, which we know alludes to this phraseology of the South shall rise again. Mm. Mm. So we never argued that the statues needed to be destroyed. We did not want them in public space because it was a public park. So I'm just talking about in terms of Memphis. I know other uh, cities like New Orleans and Charlotte and Charlottesville and uh, San Antonio, they could talk about what it meant in their local space. But in the in, in the Memphis context, yeah. we didn't want those statues where they were in public space. You want to take them down, put them in a museum. That's where you preserve <laughs> history. Yeah. And yeah. Put, put, them in, put them in a war hall. That's where you preserve history. But what they were for Memphis as Andre alluded to earlier, were were glamorizations of the Confederate Army in a way that evokes some type of nostalgia. And one way Tammy Sawyer put it one time, and and I don't know if we can articulate it any better than this, she said, these are the gods from which white supremacists draw their inspiration. Whoa. Whoa. And we knew that. And so... Since, since symbols matter, because symbols communicate a vision of existence and articulate not only what is or what was, but also what's possible, we knew they had to come down from where they were. That's right. That's right. And, and, wow. and again, uh, if we are talking about United States of America history, it is totally different than Confederate States of America history. Yes, sir. Confederate States of America history, like I said earlier, I mean, put them anywhere you want to on any piece of land of the Confederate States of America. You can't because it's their history. They were defeated. And now these states are back into the Union, supposedly to celebrate the Union. And to venerate the Union. And and these statues do none of that. It, do, it does none of that at all. White supremacists draw their inspiration um, from these statues. And white supremacy, uh, uh, when it gets uh, uh, inculcated uh, uh, in, into theology, yes. becomes um, kind of 
uh, bastardized version of the gospel and 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 all and and the stuff that we see even today mm -hmm. um, from the top from Washington D.C. on down is a byproduct of a Confederate ideology of of religion of 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 power of of all of that mixed in and these statues were just a reminder um, to a lot of uh, people who were um, and who are um, Confederate sympathizers yeah. that, um, hey, I think what they will say, the South shall rise again. Well, the South, in their estimation, uh, never left. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, mean, I find it interesting, too, just, I mean, just to talk about some of the theological connections uh, to this. Andre, you had mentioned that before, yeah. uh, or I know we've talked about this before. I mean, so in particularly how some of that stuff is still embedded into modern day Christianity here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, uh, I have been and um, talking about and um, and in some of my lectures, even in, in classes and um, writing notes. And as soon as I finish this um, book on Turner, I'm going to try to turn my attention to um, talking about um, um, race and white evangelicalism and how um the white church is, is uh, especially in the South, you, we cannot separate. And this is what is so hard for people to understand, especially good Christian folk who just want to love Jesus and just want Jesus to love everybody and just want to trying to love everybody that the very faith that they purport to have is grounded in white supremacy. Uh, the ooh. very idea, the very construction of their faith, and they just and, and, and I'm being very generous when I say many of them just don't know this or just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm being very generous. I know. Yeah, you are uh, being kind. A lot of people <laughs> do. Uh, but 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 for the ones who, who, who really like, you know, who, who will listen to you a little bit and then begin to open up their eyes and see, they then begin to know because. And, and, and for me, it, this all starts how we get slavery, how we get uh, a confederacy, how we get white supremacy ideology and all of that starts with the fact that when the first Africans were enslaved and we learned this in the seminary, right? When the big debate was, should we baptize them or not? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Yep. baptize them or not. And the reason that the Southern slave, well, Northern Southern didn't matter then back in, uh, uh, when uh, slavery was nationalized like that, when slave owners did not want to do this because they thought that if I baptize this, I, I can no longer have him or her as a slave because right. she or he would be a brother in Christ. They right. knew this. They understood this. So what happens? The state has to come in and say, no, we're going to take that problem away from you. Um, the church folk want to uh, baptize because, you know, the whole debate was, do they have souls? Do they not have souls? And all of that. But the church wants, a couple of church folk want to baptize. But we're going to put in the rules that if you get, and then law, no, no, not rules, but law. If your slave is baptized, what? Um, that doesn't mean that he or she is free from slavery. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That person must serve his or her master for the life, for his or her uh, natural life. That uh -huh. was law. 
mm. in these states on the books. So yep. the law conspired uh, with slaveholders, with the church, to come up with a middle ground. And mm. that's why sometimes Earl and myself have a problem with people talking about, oh, let's just try to find a middle ground. Well, a mm. middle ground on what? <laughs> on, my, on, on my safety? I, I don't, I, I don't, yeah. there's, not, there's not an opinion. There's not a other, another side to this. Right. This right. is the side. And when <laughs> that happened, the church showed us back then and even today that it is willing to work with the state to compromise as mm. long as to keep black bodies down, to keep black, mm -hmm. and as long as it, it, as it uh, fits a narrative that black bodies must be kept down or kept subservient, then it's going to be okay. And the good theologians of the church are going to find theological rationale, as we know, mm -hmm. showed us to justify all of those actions. Man. Woo! <laughs> Man, <laughs> alive. I mean, Earl, what you what, what you got on that, man? I got I got a lot, but Earl, what what you got on this, man? Uh, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> so so look, of course, uh, you know, Andre is really uh opening up as he has done, you know, metaphorically and academically, opening up a gateway for me to really dive into some of the research that I'm doing around these intersections of rhetoric, race, and religion. You know, I'm concentrating on uh, Albert Clegg Jr. and the Shrine of the Black Madonna, more particularly his book, The Black Messiah, which were a set of sermons that Albert Clegg was preaching in Detroit in 67 and 68. And one of the things I'm trying to look at is the way in which his uh, rhetoric articulates a conceptuality of black power. So he was a forerunner for black liberation theology. He was one of the founding fathers of it, according to many people's estimation. And so when you hear somebody talk about these connections between politics and religion and law and philosophy and ideology and how that manifests into not just symbols, but statutes. Right. So in Memphis, we were dealing not just with the statues. We were also dealing with statutes mm. they had statutes on the books which were protecting these white supremacist symbols and so we had to try to find a way to start to uh deconstruct the 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 rhetoric even within the law because people always say even right now you have Conf the sons of confederate veterans and the uh descendants of nathan Bedford Forrest. You have other white supremacists, sympathizers, and apologists who are saying stuff like they went through, uh, 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 it's illegal. It was against the law for them to take the statues down. And what happened was somebody just found a legal loophole. We actually had proposed this in one of our petitions. We said what the city should do to get around this statute because the statute says stuff like you can't defame desecrate you really can't even touch these monuments without not now it didn't specify what the uh legal uh reprimand would be but it was just saying you know it was against the law and you would have to you, you would be subject to uh some type of punishment it just didn't lay out what it was but these these were statutes and we were recommending to get around that statute that the parks be sold to a non-profit by the city and that the city could then 
allowed a nonprofit to remove the statues and basically wipe the city's hands. Yeah. So this is a legal loophole that we picked up on. Wow. And ultimately, ultimately, that's exactly what happened. Somebody took that as a recommendation. They didn't give us credit for it, but they took it as a recommendation <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and, and maneuvered in that way. And what you hear people talk about now is people on the, on the side of white supremacists, apologists and sympathizers are saying stuff like they, uh, they broke the law. No. We've, we maneuvered around the unjustness of the law to find a more just manifestation of the law. Yeah. And, and, and in the pro- process of doing that, what you discover is, as Andre said, uh, white supremacy is not only so closely wed to uh, white evangelicalism, it's also oftentimes so closely wed to uh, normalized legality. Yeah. In the United States and especially in the South, that you can't tell them apart. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're, they're almost in, they're almost inseparable, right? Like like they're so interchangeable. So we had laws on the books, like Andre was talking about the ancient laws with regards to Black humanity. You know, and it made me think about they also had laws on the uh, in the church called halfway covenants. They couldn't give you a full covenant into the church because you was black. So you would have to articulate your your understanding of how God came into your life. And since you were still black, they were saying, well, we ain't really convinced that you all the way saved. So we'll take your tithe and we'll count you as a member. But we can't verify that you ever going to get to heaven. <laughs> and and that's, that's called the halfway covenant. Right. So, so that's on the books. You know what I'm saying? And, and what I just described to you is a law that was put on the books about 10 years ago. Hmm. When some of the conversation of some of the forerunners for the movement, yeah. for, the, for the move of the statues, uh, Walter Bailey, D. Army Bailey, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Lysimber Gray, and some others who were in Memphis, some of our predecessors, you know, they started to get some traction. So what they did, what the legislature did, was just put another law on the books, forming what is called the Tennessee Historical Commission. Wow. And the head of the Tennessee Historical Commission was a known son of the Confederacy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So so what you have again is this wedlock between white supremacist ideology, philosophy, and practice, law and theology. And 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 so for us, we're like we understand laws in and of themselves are never neutral. They don't fall out of the sky. And yeah. so we found a way to rhetorically deconstruct what the law was, how the law came to be. Draw all of these connections between law, uh, theology, and politics, but also coming to grips with the fact that laws are fundamentally about power. So you can never just simply say, well, this is legal, so you automatically have to endorse it. Because what? Slavery, as Andre said earlier, was legal. Jim Crow was legalized, right? Jim Crow laws. Think about that phraseology. Apartheid was legal. Mm-hmm. So laws are never about What's right, law is about who gets access to or who maintains power. Mm. This is deep. I mean, this is deep because, I mean, so much of this stuff is being played out right now, you know, with this administration. Um, I mean, somebody said it, you know, it's like, you know, who knows the amount of irreversible damage that Trump is doing in regard, you know, that stuff we don't even know about, you know, the stuff that, it, you know, as, as we're finding out more that the presidency 
has so much powers. And, the, you know, I just found out because I was bringing this up to a friend of mine. I was like, yeah, I said, you know, Trump is being, you know, he has all these cases over there. It's like, yeah, but at when you're president, you, all those cases go away. Like they can retry him if he, you know, if he leaves office or whatever. But as he's a president, he cannot be charged with these crimes. And I'm just like, man, like. Yeah, it yeah, and I and I want to get too far off the subject, but I, when you talk about law, when you talk about policy, right? It's it's just it's interesting to me just to kind of see how some of these things uh, play out, and and in particularly as it you know relates to church and in ministry, uh-huh. and and uh, yeah. you know who who gets to go on those short term mission you know experiences and whatnot. Yeah. Um. I'm also curious. So, you know, this was back on September 11th, back in 2017. I'm sure you guys uh, heard this. This was a a Fox News anchor. Um, His name is, let's see, here we go, Brian Kilmeade. And uh, he basically, you know, you guys probably know this. He basically said he asked if activists were going to ever remove the 9-11 memorials as well and whatnot. And... (laughs) <laughs> so See, that's a red herring. Can I interject? See, yes. that's a red herring. And, and so let's look at the uh, let's look at this thing rhetorically. That's a red herring. I remember Trump himself uh out when the Charlottesville stuff was going around talking about, you know, where are we gonna start? You know, where are you gonna remove well uh Thomas Jefferson on slaves, so on and so forth. But <laughs> you draw the line at the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> period, right? Like, like you draw a line at the Civil War. If you fought against the Union and you lost, you do not get glamorized. Point blank. Period. I mean, I mean that, that, that's an easy, that's an easy fix. So that's just a red hair argument. Somebody's trying to get us to chase down because they don't want us to deal with what the Bible would call or what Jesus said is the more weightier matters of the law. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because, because if you focus on what's concrete and not just what's cosmetic, see this idea of our allegiance to certain figures as demigods mm. is it's just cosmetic. But the philosophy that undergirds the way that we look at these particular figures is what's concrete. And that's this idea, again, of white supremacy and even white supremacist theology that even shows up in blackface sometimes. Right. Oh, so, yeah, because, I mean, you got you got black and brown folk all day long who purport this certain type of mythically, racially neutral theology. Right. As if theology is not embodied in human beings. Like, for me, I, I, I say this, and I'm writing about it now, all theology is experiential, which means it takes place in the midst of the human condition. Human beings are the, those who are engaged in faith-seeking understanding, which is another definition of theology. So all theology is experiential. That experience takes place in a context. It's a social, political, cultural, geographical, and chronological context. And then all theology is not just experiential and contextual. It's also rhetorical because you got to find a way to communicate this experience and this understanding. So you do not have theology in the human condition since the 1600s without race. Mm. Yeah. Because race is a social construct, and since it's a social construct, it's part of the context. <laughs> so, so, nobody's, so nobody's fooling, you know, those of us who are, who are, you know, I, I hate to use this term because it's so pejorative now. Those of us who are woke, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and paying attention, like, like we can see past the smoke and mirrors of, 
you know, well, what do you do with uh, what happened? The, the, you draw the line at the Civil War, point blank period. If you fought mm-hmm. against the Union, if you fought against the United States of America and you lost, you don't get a trophy. <laughs> That's it. Sounds yeah. real simple to us, Dan. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> well, really go ahead, Andre. No, no, I'm just, I'm through. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's interesting just some of the, the dog whistles that are out there right now. Oh, yeah. um, as some of the lies. This was a fact checked. Uh, somebody, again, this goes back to Fox News, which, you know, we got to remember, I, you know, I bring up Fox News a lot on the show, but the reality of it is, is that. That's one of the highly watched shows that are that are out yeah. the news shows that are out there. People 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 see that as a a factual news relevance. Right. And so right. they went out and said that uh, Thomas or Jefferson this Jefferson Davis monument was removed and it was being replaced uh, with a large bronze tribute to Barack Obama. You know. <laughs> and so of course, that stirs up his. I mean, it was it was false. It was you know, fact check was wrong, but you know that stirs up you know all this kind of like white hysteria um, that we've seen a lot of, right? It's like you know, uh, deep state, and uh, you have uh, the the liberals who are you know trying to take over the government, and we're not going to allow it. Yeah. Um, now you have these statues being taken down and everything. Um, I'm curious because both of you guys work closely in churches. Um, Andre, I know you pastor a church. Earl, you have you you're in a church as well. You 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 pastor a church Correct. as well. Okay. Yes. yes, sir. How does this stuff play out then in your church? I mean, as as ministers of God, as ministers of the faith, what does this look like? You know, within the congregation. Right. Well, um, for me, Dan, you probably and we we've talked about this before uh, with G Life. Um. um my um, members are, um, and I use the pejorative term too, a little bit woker um, than, you know, at first, because we talk about these things, you know, uh, in my pastoral remarks and my uh, ask the uh, pastor segments and um, in Bible study, like tonight, we're going to start a Bible study and we're reading. Um, MLK stuff. Yeah. yeah uh, where do we go from here? And uh, I'm a facilitator discussion around that. And, and I invite um, all people to come out to um, to read that and to um, um, discuss what King is actually talking about uh, in 1967 as a way forward. Because everybody always asks us and Errol can attest to this, you know, what we do now, what are we going to do now, you know, and all of that. And um, and, and we've been saying it for forever, you know, what we want to do and what we need to do in this city. Uh, people just need to um, um, get on board, and, yeah. and for all of the people, and, and but I tell my church members is this because I have I have a couple I've, I'm blessed to have a couple of church members who lived during the '60s, yeah, um, yeah. during the King assassination, who were high school students at the time, who um, participated in um, Black Mondays, and who um, was tear gassed um, in the first. Um, March when King attempted to do it here in 68. And, and so they have some sort of um, um, investment and they have some sort of an understanding of what it is to go up against a recalcitrant government and a um, um, a white supremacist um, um, culture. Yeah. And so Trump comes along. It's my elderly members, actually. Uh-huh. 
that tell tell us, hey, you know that sounds familiar. My elderly members saying, wait a minute now, you know, yeah. Trump yeah. is sounding um, um, like he want to take us back to the fifties, you know, and the forties and, and and things of that nature. So, well, that word more tell that he want to take us back to the eighteen hundreds. Right, really, right, right. <laughs> even farther than that. I tell you, I mean, so, so, so in my church proper um um my church is good I, I mean you know on those type of things and then if we do have some disagreement i still got some uh um, folk that really are heavy and, and i can understand why because of the areas in which they live in they're heavy on uh on black on black crime you know for lack of a better phrase and they're heavy on you know trying to get our young people to act right and be right and do right and stuff like that but what i then try to do uh, and what the congregation tries to do is to get them to see the larger picture, and which, for the most part, they, they do. Uh, I am blessed to be at a place where I can um, try new things. Uh, I can um, say some new stuff. Um, I can try to articulate uh, what it is that we're doing. I'm not um, being pulled out on the carpet. And I know uh, I'm from the deacons or from the leadership of the church or whatever, um, and you know, when they see me on TV or they hear about me in Ferguson or they hear about me in D.C. or something like that, they're not um, disappointed. They are proud and mm -hmm. they are prayerful and they try to help me the best way that they know how. So I am good on that level. because I know a lot of pastors are not. And I am very yeah. sympathetic to that as well, too. I know that there are certain pastors in this city and in this country um, that if they preach a Black Lives Matter sermon, um, they will be having a meeting the next morning or probably later that night. Yeah. You know, <laughs> turning the keys, you know. So um, uh, I do understand that. But yet and still, um, the call is to speak the truth to power. The call is to uh, uh, be faithful to what God is leading you to say at this particular moment. And I do believe that since God uh, is very brilliantly uh, articulated that God um, it's a contextual God and God works in context and we don't even know God apart from our own context. Um, that God every now and then calls all ministers to speak a truth to the current contextual situation in which they find themselves in. And the only thing that we need to ask ourselves is, uh, do we have enough courage to do so? Mm. Wow. That's deep. Earl, what you got? <laughs> Another amen. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, and I, the only thing that I would say is slightly different in terms of our congregational context between Andre and I. You know, Andre has Andre is the founding pastor of G Life. I've been at Abyssinian Baptist Church six years. Now, to be frank, most folks don't know about Abyssinian Baptist Church in Memphis. Apart from me being there, the church is only 12 years old. But I have had probably more members join in the past couple of years who have seen me out in the community, which means they are by and large young adults who are relatively uh, connected to or at least familiar with some of what's happening in terms of the movement. I don't have as many elders who uh, probably were alive at that time or definitely I haven't had, but maybe one or two of my uh, elders come in and say, you know, that they were involved in any of those things at that particular time in the 60s and stuff like that. So that would be probably the only difference. But everything else that he said, I can uh, echo in touche because that's just the reality of the context that we're living in. 
Yeah, and what and and in and in regards to this, you know, I there's a it, now that the podcast has been on for a while, you know, I'm able to see you know, and run into and see some some listeners. Obviously, there's a, a strong movement of white progressives, liberals, whatever you want to you know call them and stuff, man, left leaning folks. And um, how how would you then encourage our our white brothers and sisters who are who want to be more conscious and want to be more involved in things like this? What does what does this look like? And then how does that how does that then in turn play out so that you know white privilege doesn't you know continue to rear its ugly head even in movements like this? I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like I have a lot of uh, of of particularly at the school I teach at, I have a lot of just anxious and ready to go out young white students who just, you know, they read a couple of W. E. Du Bois paragraphs and they, you know, maybe they, maybe they saw, you know, I ain't your Negro. And they're like, Oh yes, I'm, I am out there and I'm in it and stuff like that. What would you, what would you say, you know, particularly with you two in the community right. out there in Memphis? And I can honestly say, I mean, I follow both of you guys. I mean, I'll post this all on the show notes that, you know, you guys are doing some amazing work christian-based work in your community i mean that you would both be examples that i would point to in a class and say okay look these two cats is doing it so how then would you in turn talk to a group of white students that say yes i'm against trump but what what do i do (laughs) well i'm gonna let earl give you the uh more (laughs) elaborate answer question uh no no the, the more scholarly answer because I've actually thought about this, um, Dan, and I, I just really have two things. I mean, right now, in, in these crucial times, I think, A, uh, white folk um, ought to, A, sit under the leadership of progressive black folk. Mm-hmm. Come to learn, listen and learn and participate, but sit under. What I mean by that is don't try to run it, don't try to take it over, but sit under. And then number two, and more importantly, and this is what I'm getting at uh, with some of my um, ex-evangelicals um, uh, and, 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 and people who are still on the periphery, maybe not the ex-evangelicals a little bit, but the ones that are still on the periphery, you're going to have to start white folk and black folk, really, but white folk in particular are going to have to start supporting progressive black churches mm. as well, too. Um, the paradox, the progressive paradox is real. Uh, yeah. On one end, you got people out in the streets that don't have anything to do with the church, but yet and still everything that you purport in your theological framework and outlook speaks to what they are talking about in the streets. Mm. And surely support can come in those areas, because we're going to be only as uh, vibrant and important as our small groups are strong or our institutions, our progressive institutions are strong. And sadly, the point is that progressive institutions do not get the funding that uh, mm. conservative institutions do. And Talk about it. Talk about it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we get lumped into everything else when... We're on the fringe of the fringe as well, too. So if people are really serious about uh, um, trying to do this for the long haul and make this a thing they become instead of a thing that they do, then those are the two things that I think they uh, uh, white people ought to at least initially begin to do and then allow the spirit to take care of the rest. 
Yeah. Not too much. Again, not too much to add. Uh, very, very, I, I, I agree. Uh, I do think this. A lot of times when white brothers and sisters of goodwill articulate this profound, uh, uh, I don't know what the term is, but just they don't know what to do type thing. I, I don't. I don't know. A lot of times, I don't even find that to be sincere, mm. because because yeah. because there's a million and one things to do. Right? <laughs> like 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 you want okay. Look no no. You want to help the cause. You want to write a check if you know Andre or I or you know we can go down the list just in terms of pastors from Tracy Blackman and and uh, Starsky Wilson in St. Louis to uh, Reggie Williams in Chicago, Otis Moss III in Chicago, Heber Brown in uh, Baltimore. You know, we can go down and send some money. You know, send some money. That's one thing you can do. Uh, write an op-ed, uh, uh, being public in your solidarity with, you know, uh, throw a brick. You know, do, you do something. You know, it, it's just something to do. And, and I feel like, and I said this to a group of pastors uh, a couple years ago here in Memphis, uh, where I was invited to a meeting where they were trying to figure out, you know, ways for the churches to get involved and white churches were, you know, proclaiming this certain type of uh, ambivalence or uh, anxiety around what they could do. It's, it's things to do. And, and what Andre described is very real. And from a uh, more liberal slash progressive point of view, I think the paradox that Andre described is apropos because so many people want to disparage religion altogether. And they don't know what to make of somebody like Andre and I, who are unapologetic when we say it is the function of our faith to inspire us to do this particular type of work. And without it, we cannot say that we would be doing it. And they don't know how to support us without having to backtrack on all of the negative things that they have said and thought about religion in general. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, wow. That's this is good yep. stuff. I'm gonna have to play this for a class. You know, what I'm saying, <laughs> show this to him, man. Because I think what you both have done, and I know you said Tammy is her name, right? Tammy Sawyer. Yeah, Tammy uh -huh. Sawyer. Yeah. Yeah. She was uh, obviously we couldn't get her today, and I, you know, I, we'll, we'll definitely. I'm gonna have to circle back and get her back on, obviously. Um, but uh, I think what y'all are doing. I mean, again, this is. This is a, a a not even a glimmer of hope, but this is a good shining light of hope in in a time when it feels like, man, we're just going backwards on a, in a lot of regards. Right. You know, it's like you got Trump opening up all the coastlines now for drilling, uh, you know, the the pipeline that went through, um, you know, it looks like, you know, but it's like, man, here are local cats doing it. They're ministers. They're not even they're not, you know, because I hear this also sometimes from, you know, centrists and, and folks who lean right or like, oh, but, you know, people who are liberal or people who are or, or protesters, you know, they are um, they're Marxists and they're secularists uh -huh. and they're, you know, uh -huh. they're they're out there and, you know, they don't even worship a God. And I'm just like, no, here's two pastors that that uh -huh. love God, that know the Bible inside and out who are standing up for what I believe Jesus would be doing himself out in Absolutely. the community. Hey, Dan, yeah. Dan, can I just give a quick plug? Because you just that's a beautiful segue into a book that I'm reading right now. Come on. Actually, Gary Dorian's um, second yeah. volume uh, of the uh, Black Social Gospel, um, yeah. Breaking White Supremacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm at the part now of where he's talking about Mordecai Johnson, um, Benjamin E. Mays, Howard Thurman. And I just got to the chapter where he's talking about Adam Clayton Powell Sr., 
Um, he pastor, what church? What was the name of the church? I was saying, <laughs> what was the name of the church? Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was sitting in Harlem, New York. Yeah, our namesake. But what he talks about is, and, 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 and for me personally, I found this real refreshing because Mordecai Johnson, Benjamin E. Mays, and Howard Thurman, and, um, and, and, and those guys came up in a time um, during the Harlem Renaissance and during the um, period in which there were a lot of pushback in, and this was the development of the black colleges and university system as well, too. So there were a lot of pushback, even from black folk, that the problem was religion. And the problem was the churches, the black church. I mean, the talk. I mean, the the the, the uh, and how they talked about the black church. And but these were folk in the academy had their PhDs, even though Mordecai Johnson did not. But uh, Benjamin E. Mays, um, 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 Thurman, and others had their PhDs, but they were in these institutions, leading these institutions, and talking with and talking about their faith and how their faith can talk about the racism and the injustice that is going on today. And they challenge the black churches as well, but they also challenge white churches and, and um, their own students as well as their own, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, professors. Uh, colleagues. Uh, and colleagues yeah. Their own colleagues about the role that faith can play. Yeah. And this was like 1920s, 30s, 40s. And, and so I'm looking back on that and I'm seeing the, some of the same stuff going on, you know, today, you know, being in the academy and being a person of faith. And like Earl said, telling everybody un unapologetically that we're out here because of a function of our faith, you know, and we would not, you know, I don't know, we would be out here if it wasn't for our faith. Mm. And, and so the, the the point of the matter is, is that this kind of debate has been going on for a long time as well. And uh, I just found some encouragement from how they had to navigate those spaces and places yeah. uh, even back then. And um, um, it just gave me a little bit of boost of energy that I needed on a certain day when I was reading that, that, um, um, that, that kept me, um, uh, kept my head up a little bit. I wasn't feeling that well that day. <laughs> uh, I kept my head up and said, hey, you know what? Thank you, Lord. I am on the right side of this. And I need to, to just continue to do what I uh, feel led and called to do. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we. I personally, I mean, I think we need more of this. I mean, I think about the Me Too campaign. I mean, I think I just watched the Golden Globes and uh, y'all voting for Oprah, right, in 2020? <laughs> Listen, I'm not talking about 2020. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I am talking only about 2018. There we go. 2018, 2018. We need both. We need to flip the Congress. We need to flip Tennessee. There we 2018, go. 2018, 2018. <laughs> I heard that, man. I heard that. I know that's exactly what a lot of us are thinking, too, especially here in Chicago, man. We got a, a gubernatorial election coming up. We, we got to get this fool out. But that's for another conversation. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm just like, man, you hear all these folks getting up and they're talking about time's up and everything. And Hey, look, I am 300 percent, 400 percent for that. I'm wondering, though, man, it's like what if a campaign was actually started against like white supremacy like like that, like, you know, openly like the way like folks went after 
the 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 smoking campaign like you know what is it the truth.org or something like that or you know they have these commercials right. about smoking i'm always just you know as i think about it as somebody looks at media and studies and, and just knows how much especially the younger generation consumes media and and values it i mean i have to like you know guard my daughter's you know youtube consumption time and she'd be on that right now all night so i'm just yeah, I just, I'm just I'm just wondering, like, you know, what what that would look like, <laughs> you know, if it would even look like. Um, uh, man, brothers, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, and I thank you guys for both for coming on. I know you guys are both busy. I know you guys are both uh, family men and uh, working things out. And I appreciate that. Um, any final thoughts moving forward here uh, at the beginning of 2018? What uh, what do you what do y'all thoughts and and uh, and 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 where can we find you guys at? Well, first, before we uh, do that, and Andre, I, I really want you to go first again. But let us both thank you for the wonderful work you're doing. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's been ever since. And for those who don't know how far we go back, Dan, uh, I think all of your listeners should know that we <laughs> met because somebody sent me a copy of. The Soul of Hip Hop, Rims, Tims, and the Cultural Theology. Yes. And asked me to write a review on it. <laughs> I didn't know you at the time, but after I started reading the book and I felt it was a wonderful representation of the connections between hip hop, m- music, and culture, and the liberating gospel of Black Jesus, <laughs> I said, let me reach out to this brother. And I don't know if I ever told you this story. I reached out to Dan, told him, look, they asked me to write a review. Tell me what you want me to say. <laughs> I remember that. But, but, I remember yeah, I mean, that. And so that's how we met, man. And um, just on the academic side, of course, uh, but also on the ecclesiastical side, man. I see you at uh, FTE events, man. You know, I've seen you all across the country with the uh, Pico Network and all that other stuff, man. You're doing some wonderful stuff, man. So we appreciate you in the same way you've tossed some affirmation on us. I think it's only right, not just being collegial, but being sincere. When somebody's doing the type of work that you're doing, man, we salute you too. Man, well, I, 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 I humbly accept, man. I really do appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yep, yeah, amen to that. <laughs> I hear that, man. I hear that. Um, well, like I said, man, I mean, like you guys are again doing some amazing stuff. And again, I, you know, I want to reiterate this and I'll say it at the introduction again, uh, that, you know, I know women, a lot of women, black women, strong black women are involved in this, um, as well, this movement as well. And, um, again, I just appreciate yes. what you guys, um, again are doing, uh, Andre, you got any, uh, final thoughts here and, uh, and whatnot? Yeah. Well, um, I'm on Twitter. At A.E. Johnson, Ph.D., A.E. Johnson, Ph.D. I'm also on Facebook as well. I am. Um, oh, also go to the Henry McNeil Turner Project. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we have um, I'm the curator of that website. We are up. I think I think we have um, um, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner's writings up to 1880. Uh, up online right now uh, and um, just check it out and see a forerunner of what we now call black theology mm-hmm. in action. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, um, brother Dan, thank you for this opportunity to uh, be a part of this wonderful podcast. And, um, and I just want to say thank you for all that you do as well. 
Well, thank you, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to put this thing out. Put this thing out right. there, man. So uh, I can be found uh, Earl J. Fisher on Facebook at Pastor underscore Earl, E-A-R-L-E, on Twitter and on Instagram. Abyssinian Baptist Church is 3890 Mill Branch in Whitehaven in Memphis. And um, I am finishing up this dissertation, man, inch <laughs> by inch. Word Come by on. word, uh, be, page by page. It's gonna be groundbreaking. I know. Groundbreaking, man. I'm telling you now. I'm telling. <laughs> we building something down yes. here, Dan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I definitely want to encourage any of your listeners who are uh, considering um, academic work and rhetoric and communication to look at the program at the University of Memphis. I think uh, Andre Johnson, of course. Uh, I think my advisor, Antonio. Dave Alasco, I think the uh, chair emeritus is what I'm going to call him for so many years. Uh, Dr. Mark, Michael Charles Left, the late great Michael Charles Left. I think what, what has been built or what is being built at, at that particular program is indeed not just groundbreaking, but I think it's top tier uh, and that, that people should uh, look into it as an opportunity. But of course, man, um, 2018, as Andre said, man, we, we going to have to you know, make some moves for real. I think the decisions that we make with regards to 2018, 2019, and 2020 are seriously going to be decisions that we'll be living with for the next 30, 40, and 50 years. And I'm 39, and I'll be 40 in September. And so when you start talking about the prime of life, I understand how crucial these moments are, man, because it's mm. going to determine what the trajectory of not just my life, man, but my son and, you know, any grandchildren, you know. So, so we really have to be, be focused and we have to be consistent. We have to be courageous. We got to be creative, man. And, um, you know, go for broke. Now I pushed all of my cards. I pushed all of my chips to the center table, baby. It's, it's ride or die for me. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed, man. Well, <laughs> I think again, this is a momentous time. I mean, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's crucial. It's crucial. It's crucial. And I, you know, I, and I try not to sink into any, uh, Hollywood esque, conspiracy type theories you know that you know whatnot uh, i don't necessarily i, I loved uh, andre your tweet the other night i don't believe this whole bannon trump feud i think this is all planned and 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 orchestrated um but uh you know this is again this is encouraging and i'm glad we're able to just you know put this out there and continue to put it out there man so gentlemen thank you so much thank you brother thank you, thank be with you. you. absolutely Joining us now is Devante Clark, uh, Stefan Clark's brother. Uh, thank you for, for uh, speaking with us. And of course, uh, our condolences uh, to you and your family. Um, Stevante, when you first saw this, this video, um, what went through your mind? What did you, you feel and think? Um, I... I felt like um, when I when I seen the video. Yes. Is that yes, what you said? yes. Yes. The, the I, body I cam video. I, I I I I never watched the video. I've never seen the video. I've that... never watched it on the news. I've never turned it on. Whenever I see it, people put it in their songs and then they're in their in their clips and they share it. I never watched the video. I don't want to see that video. Never, ever, ever. Tell me, tell me about your brother, Stevante. He was hilarious. He was, you know, he was asleep. He had to go get it by any means necessary. 
You know what I mean? He loved his children. He loved his children. He was a great father. That's why I got this GoFundMe down there. For his children, he loved his mother. He loved them babies. He loved his grandmother. You know, he was just, he was great, you know? And um, he, he just loved. He loved, loved, loved. And people are trying to just, just destroy and discredit him as the, for the father he was. And he was just a great, perfect, perfect being. He was a perfect father. The kids loved him. They, they loved him. So His there were, loved him. there have been rallies and this King's owners having to come address the situation. This is deeper than that. Ain't nobody loved us but our city. Ain't nobody ever loved us but our city. Nobody reached out to us but people from our city. No Obamas, no Trumps. You know, nobody reached out to us, but everybody from our city. All the people we got is that in my city, they looked out for us. I'm so, I'm so proud of my city. I'm so proud of y'all. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud. Devante, we are, we're so sorry for the loss of your brother and for the road that you now no, have to walk. No, I don't need you to be sorry, because I can't do nothing when I'm sorry, OK? I need you to pray okay. for me because because we got this. We tired of the sorry and, and, and the trying to exploit our pain and all that. Okay, we're trying to move forward. We're trying to bring peace and justice. We want community centers, resource right. centers, libraries, our own security teams. We're trying to get it for us, for Zoe, for Stefan Clark. We're trying to bring right. us, right. together. Right. us together. Us, us, us. us.